Let's open our Bibles to the revelation of Jesus Christ and to chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 4 through 8 this morning. That will comprise our text. The topic there, the Apostle John looks into the future and sees the second coming of Jesus with clouds. The title of our message, Hey, hey, you, you, gaze up at my clouds. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thanks for this morning. What a joy to be together with uh, believers in Christ. Some we have relationships with for many, many decades, Lord. Others new, but all of us belonging to you in your family, in your forever family. Uh, we feel that closeness and, and the wonder of fellowship. We thank you for those that are watching from home, Lord, because of various illnesses or injuries or uh, concerns about what's happening in the world today. Uh, draw us all together, Lord, before your throne to hear what your spirit has to say to the church and to us in the church. We thank you. We praise you. We do it in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. When there was a Disneyland in Anaheim, the Fantasyland teacups were a blast. An original opening day attraction, they provided one and a half minutes of intense, nonstop, nausea-inducing whirling. My secret for not getting dizzy, stare directly into the eyes of the person across from you the entire time. It worked every time. Let your gaze stray even a little, and the whirling background will overwhelm you. In a world that seems to be spinning out of control, you need to focus your gaze on a person who won't look away. Don't take your eyes off of Jesus, not in life, not in this book. Along those lines, I want you to see something in these verses that I think is pretty endearing. In verse 4, Jesus mentioned the churches. While in context, he was talking about seven particular first century gatherings, we'll see that Jesus' letter to them are for all the churches, throughout the church age, us included. In verse 5, we're told he loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And then in verse 6, we learn that Jesus had made us kings and priests to his God and Father. And so I don't think it's going so far to say that Jesus doesn't take his eyes off of us. We are prominent in these verses. It would be enough to thrill us to know that the Lord is ever watching us. I'm saying that he has locked his eyes on us. Two people locking eyes in a crowded room is a staple of romantic cinema. Oh, how he loves you and me. Amen. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, Jesus is preparing you for his return with clouds. And number two, Jesus will place you at his return with clouds. Let's talk about preparing us first in verses four, five, and six. Now, let me just summarize how these verses include us. Between his first and second comings to earth, Jesus is gathering his church, comprised of those who have been washed of their sins, once saved, he works in you to prepare you for ministry as kings and priests in the future kingdom of God on earth when he comes with clouds. And so we begin in verse 4 where it says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was, who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Seven is a prominent number in the Revelation, or I should say groups of sevens are prominent. A group of seri or series of sevens is called a heptad. I, I knew you'd want to know that. Uh, just forget about it at this point now. 
In all, there are at least 52 such groupings in the book. Here are just some of them. I'll just rattle them off. There are seven churches, seven spirits, seven lampstands, seven stars, and that's just in chapter 1. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, seven lamps, seven promises to the overcomer, seven horns, seven eyes, seven angels, seven thunders, seven heads, seven crowns, seven plagues, seven mountains, and seven kings. There are seven blessings or beatitudes in the book. Jesus makes seven I am statements in the book. Here's a quote from an article on the Hebrew use of seven. The number seven is especially prominent in scripture, appearing over 700 times. From the seven days of creation to the many sevens in the revelation, the number seven connotes such concepts as completion and perfection, exoneration and healing, and the fulfillment of promises and oaths. And so it's uh, a number to look for. Uh, it gives what the writer is talking about emphasis. To the seven churches which are in Asia, these seven churches were all in the region we know as Western Turkey. If you look at a map, you'll see that they are in geographical order with regard to a messenger who would be delivering the revelation to each of them one by one. And so he would go church to church to the next nearest church on this list. The seven letters to the seven churches have at least three applications. They originally had a provisional, uh, provincial application. These seven were actual churches existing in John's day to which Jesus wrote for correction and or commendation. The letters always have a present application. At the end of each letter is the exhortation to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. Each letter is written to a church and each is written to all churches for the entire church age. And the letters always have a personal application to every Christian in every age. They each say, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you have an ear? You do. And that means what Jesus said to the churches, he said to you. And so they have these three applications. It's also popular to suggest that the letters have a prophetic application. Uh, this was taught to me and I've taught it before. And by that is meant the letters represent seven successive periods of church history from the apostolic church up to the end of the church age. And as appealing as that sounds, there is one big problem with the prophetic application. If the church had to go through these seven periods of time, the rapture could not have been imminent until the last era. And so for that and some other reasons, we no longer teach this prophetic application. For one thing, the history doesn't really fit perfectly, uh, but more importantly, uh, it destroys the idea of an imminent rapture because you, you would have had to get to the final church age, uh, the final part of the church age in order for there to be a rapture. And so uh, if you're wondering about that, uh, tuck that into your notes. If you've taken notes on my teaching before, just scratch that out. <laughs> Grace to you and peace was so common a greeting, we may not think about how remarkable it is to be able to say it or how much practical help is contained in it. Grace to you should take me back to the understanding that I am totally undeserving of salvation. I am a sinner by nature and by choice. God has saved me by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Peace is what I can therefore experience as a human being. I am at peace with God. I'm no longer God's enemy and I can have the supernatural peace of God 
in order to relate to my world and circumstances. You remember that lyric, what the world needs now is love, sweet love? Well, what the world needs now is grace, saving grace, and the peace that accompanies it. I can think of no truth more mind-changing in a time of extreme turmoil and stress than to know I am at peace with God and that I can therefore be at peace in my spirit in the whirling of the world. Uh, and so all of us should be praying for peace and realizing that we can experience the peace of God in our lives. Uh, the greatest issues of our lives have been resolved, haven't they? Death, sin, not taxes, but uh, that's a whole nother thing. Uh, I don't have to worry about death. In fact, I can almost be excited about death. I can, as, as we talked about not too long ago, there are times when we pray that people would die. Uh, because their suffering is so intense and they're ready to see Jesus. And they say that. They said, I'm ready to go. Let's go. Uh, so death is no longer an enemy. Death has been conquered. To live is Christ, to die is gain and, and all. Sin, has been, as we'll see in a minute, has been overcome. Uh, and so those, those enemies are defeated. The devil is defeated, too, and we'll see about that, too. Uh, and so whatever else is going on in the world, I can have really an ultimate kind of peace, spiritually speaking. Uh, because there's nothing to fear. Uh, it says here, him who is and was and is to come. Now, that sounds like it's describing Jesus, but a Jew would immediately and correctly understand this to refer to Yahweh. Plus you're told in the next phrase that this person is seated on the throne. The father sits on the throne and Jesus is sitting at his right hand in terms of what's happening in the world today. And so this is a description of the father. Next, we are greeted by the seven spirits who are before his throne. If you're going to keep track of weird descriptions in the Revelation, this is a worthy inclusion. A popular solution is that this refers to a verse in Isaiah that seems to describe God the Holy Spirit seven ways. It reads like this. This is Isaiah 11:2. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And so if you count the first mention of the spirit in that verse, you can come up with seven descriptions of the Holy Spirit. The problem is, language scholars point out that while in English we may be able to count seven, in Hebrew there are really only six. And so in the original language there are only six descriptions uh, of the Holy Spirit, so this can't be the place that we uh, refer to. Now John is going to say something similar in the fifth chapter of the Revelation. There we're going to read, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne, and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. If we were Jews... And we were familiar with the Old Testament, and we heard seven eyes, you wouldn't think of Isaiah at all. You would think of chapter 4 in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah spoke of the eyes of the Lord, quote, being seven. That's in chapter 4, verse 10. He spoke this way while discussing the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. It's the chapter where we get that famous verse, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And so while discussing the spirit's power and energizing of getting them to rebuild the second temple, he uses this phraseology of the seven eyes and the seven spirits. 
And because Zechariah used this imagery to describe the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, we know that John was using it this way also. There has to be a continuity between usages. Why use these phrases instead of simply saying God, the Holy Spirit? Well, one commentator pointed out the book of Revelation is immediately using images from Old Testament prophecies to show that this book is interacting with those symbols. Revelation uses language that is found in previous prophecies so that the readers can connect the message of Revelation to the prophecy in the Old Testament. Revelation is literally full of references to the Old Testament. And the writer, who is John, receiving this by inspiration, wants us to be sure that this is the book that ties everything together. It draws from all over the prophets in the Old Testament, bringing them all together in the consummation of the age. Uh, and uh, it's really fantastic, the amount of imagery that's borrowed from the Old Testament. These references are a sign that direct us to look at Zechariah. And so if I'm reading this, and I see these seven spirits, I read that in Zechariah 4. I should go there and make some notes and do some comparisons. Uh, and an angel was showing him things in Zechariah chapter 4. I'll read a couple of passages to you. You get a feel for this. In Zechariah 4, 2, and 3, it says, uh, The angel said to me, What do you see? So I said, I'm looking, and there's a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it, and on the stand seven lamps with seven pipes to seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at the left. Now, interesting, we're going to encounter seven lampstands later in this first chapter of the Revelation in verses 13 and 20. The angel revealed two olive trees as the two anointed ones who stand before the Lord of the whole earth. Later in the Revelation, two anointed witnesses have a prominent role in the great tribulation. And so you see, when you go back, and see these images, and then you see them in the Revelation, you understand that there is a solid connection. John's not just making things up, and you can't use these images to teach whatever you want them to teach. They have to make sense with how they were used in the Old Testament. And this is why the whole allegorical approach to the book of Revelation is ridiculous. Uh, it's not full of allegories, it's filled with signs that direct you to the Old Testament. The problem is, myself included, we don't know the Old Testament the way we could, and we certainly don't know it the way a Jew would. And, and we need to think, put our Jewish caps on, not the yarmulkes, but a thinking cap, and uh, figure out where these passages come from. One more thing about not naming God the Holy Spirit directly. The Spirit has the ministry of showing the world Jesus. He is the promise of the Father given by the Son. He keeps a low profile. Descriptions of the Holy Spirit's ministry complement his determination not to call attention to himself. Uh, and so um, the Spirit is definitely being talked about here, but in a way that ties us to the Old Testament and doesn't cause any unnecessary attention to go to him. Charles Spurgeon said, and I quote, it is the chief office of the Holy Spirit to glorify Jesus Christ. He does many things, but this is what he aims at in all of them to glorify Christ. So it shouldn't come as a surprise to us that the Spirit isn't mentioned more than he is or that he's mentioned uh, in symbol because Jesus is the main figure.
So verse five, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. These three phrases are found in Psalm 89 as a description of the Messiah who would rule on David's throne from Jerusalem. By using the references in the Revelation, it is beyond doubt that Jesus is the son of David who will rule on the throne from Jerusalem over the much promised kingdom. And another thing this does, when you realize this is coming from the Old Testament, and that's a promise there, that there will be a real kingdom on a real earth for a real period of time. Uh, this isn't some invisible kingdom that Christians uh, create by their goodness and graces on the earth. It's a real kingdom that's going to be ruled over by the Lord. These phrases present to us, his church, Jesus in his past, present, and future ministries. Faithful witness looks to Jesus' past. Witness is martyr. That's the word it comes from. Jesus came and was faithful to accomplish his witness on the cross, his martyrdom for the human race. Firstborn is a word of preeminence. It doesn't mean Jesus was created. It means Jesus, when he rose from the dead, was the per firstborn from the dead. He was the preeminent person who would never die again. And it means others will follow and rise as a result of his resurrection. Because the Lord rose from the dead, you will rise from the dead or be raptured. Uh, the vast majority of Christians, obviously, through the centuries, in the ground or blown to smithereens or wherever they are, they'll be brought together in the, ra in the resurrection of the dead, in their new glorified bodies, the way a seed produces a plant. Uh, those that are alive and remain will be raptured. Uh, but Jesus is the first person of that era, never to die and to be resurrected. We live presently in the power of that resurrection as we await our fate. And in the future, the Lord Jesus will be installed as the ruler over the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Jesus loved us and thereby we know that he loves us. He loved you while you were yet a sinner and he proved his love on the cross by dying for you. Have you realized how unlovable you are to God? Do you ever think about, I don't want to bring anybody down or anything like that, but... There's nothing about me or you that God should love us. I mean, especially, you know, obviously before you're a Christian, you're, you're against God. You might not even know it, but you're taken captive by the devil to do his will. You can't think right. You can't act right. Uh, even if you're trying hard, you're, you're an imbecile. Uh, I mean, just it's crazy. And, and yet the Lord said, well, I'm going to die for you. Uh, and then he surrounds, you know, the, the cross is surrounded really by detractors. Uh, you know, what a, you know, what a bad day the Lord was having from a human point of view, right? He's hanging on the cross and he's between two thieves and they both are reviling him for a while. At the foot of the cross is just his one apostle and his mom. You expect his mom to be there, but you know, there's one apostle, the rest of them is scattered and everybody else is making fun of him and casting insults at him and hurling things at him. And, and in that sense, you know, eventually the one thief repented and went to heaven and, and that's remarkable. Uh, I mean, how much of us would have the, how, much, how many of us would have the wherewithal to do that? Hey, hey, weren't you just a few minutes reviling me? You're not going to heaven. You don't deserve heaven. I'm going, but not you. I kind of changed my mind about you, you know? I mean, it's a, it's a remarkable thing that Jesus died for you. It, it's incredible. You don't deserve it. 
And that's why I can say Jesus loves you. His love does not depend upon your behavior, and therefore it can never change. His love, uh, I don't know if we even say his love grows for us because it's infinite and eternal right now. He loves you as much as, as you can possibly be loved. Uh, nobody knows you like Jesus, and uh, nobody loves you the way he loves you. It says he washed us from our own sins in his own blood. Washed can be translated loosed or released and is better understood that way. We are released once for all from the penalty of sin and we are loosed from the power of sin. Yes, of course, we still sin, but there is a very strong sense in which we don't have to. Uh, but if we do, uh, he is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse six, he has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is in a prophetic tense. It's understood to be presently true because it will come to pass. In his second coming, we return with Jesus and in some sense, we're going to share his rule over the earth. To him will be glory when he is fully revealed at his second coming, then he will have dominion forever and ever from that time forward. How do we understand that Jesus does not have dominion now? Theologian Roger Olson describes the church age saying this, we are living in an enemy-occupied territory. For whatever reason and by whatever means, the kingdoms of this world the political systems that people have created are not yet ruled over by God, except in the sense that they are subject to God's ultimate control. God can limit their destructive power, but he has relinquished, as it were, complete control and is waiting and depending until the end of this age on us, God's people, to resist God's enemy who is occupying his territory, the kingdoms of this world. Now, if you think that gives the devil too much authority, consider the following. The Apostle John, in his gospel, calls the devil the ruler of this world three different times. The Apostle Paul calls the devil the prince of the power of the air. When the devil tempted Jesus in the wilderness, we read that he took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Some people suggest it was all the future kingdoms as well as the present kingdoms. And the devil said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus did not dispute the devil's right to offer him those kingdoms. That wasn't part of his answer. He used a, a very different approach. He didn't say, well, you can't offer me what you don't own. Uh, and, and so there's a sense, a very strong sense, that uh, the Lord does not have the dominion yet. It is therefore with joy unspeakable we read that Jesus is coming with clouds to be the ruler over the kings of the earth. And that's what we will see unfold in this book of the Revelation. The devil's temporary authority will topple and the rightful ruler will be installed. I frequently use as an illustration the D-Day invasion of Normandy, World War II. It effectively ended the war in Europe. It broke the back of the fascists and the Nazis. But fierce fighting continued for 11 more months before victory was declared. From D-Day uh, on June 6th until August 21st, when Paris was liberated, 72,911 Allied service members were killed or listed missing, and over 150,000 were wounded. And so the war was effectively over. The Germans had no chance after, after D-Day. 
but the war went on until uh, the victory was uh, claimed. And that's something like what's happening in our world today. Jesus defeated Satan on the cross, no doubt about that, but the kingdoms of this world are still under Satan's dominion until the second coming. Let your heart delight in the knowledge that Jesus is keeping his eyes locked on you. He saw you from the cross, we might say, when he was washing you from your sins in his own blood. He called you out of the crowd into his church. You are his kingdom of priests being prepared for your future ministry in the kingdom at his second coming. Uh, and so you, you see us in this, right? You, 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 we're not making this up. I mean, this is the church. This is you and I. So, you know, the Lord, he can't help but mention us. He loves us so much. He, he, wants, he wants us to know this isn't just something that has to happen. This is something that's happening for us, with us. We're, we're partnering with him, as it were. He loves us. Jesus will place you at his return in the clouds. Remember that old Michael W. Smith song? You need to light to help me find your place in this world. My place in this world. Do you know who Michael W. Smith is? Raise your hand if you know who Michael Five of you. All right, thank you. A hundred years ago, he was a Christian recording artist, but... Uh, once you've received the Lord, you do find your place in this world. You do it the old-fashioned way. You pray, you read your Bible, you gather together with believers serving in a local church, and you share your love for the Lord with others you encounter in the world. You're a member of the body of Jesus on the earth. Serve him, stay humble, be led by the Holy Spirit, and over time you discover what member you are in that body. You're a living stone in the temple of God on the earth. Allow the Lord to place you where he wants, when he wants. In the future, you're going to be coming back with Jesus to rule alongside him. And so verse 7, behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so, amen. Now this verse is absolutely full of the Old Testament. It borrows cloud imagery from Daniel 7 and 14, from Jeremiah chapter 4, from Ezekiel chapter 30, from Zephaniah chapter 1, and from Zechariah chapter 12 and 13. Those passages all mention his coming in or with clouds. Is clouds symbolic? Probably not, not here. It means clouds of some sort are going to accompany Jesus at his coming. Those of you who are on social media, did you see that fantastic picture of the eye of a storm somewhere this week that they kept putting up? It, it just, the clouds were like amazing. And I thought, this is, gonna, it, this is a, a cloud that Jesus could come back in. It was just so immense and powerful and shocking and terrible all at the same time. And so I think we're talking about clouds here, not, you know, anything secretive. You might remember, too, at his ascension into heaven in the book of Acts, we read, Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched him, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go to heaven. And so the Lord was taken up and there was a cloud involvement and uh, there will be cloud involvement when he comes back. Oh, it's one of my favorite scenes uh, in the Bible. You know, the Lord's leaving. He's told them he's leaving. 
And the disciples are still asking, are you going to establish the kingdom on the earth now? And then the, he gets, you know, raptured, as it were, into heaven. He disappears in the clouds. I wonder how long they actually stood there wondering what to do next. How, you know, I mean, who, you ever been in a group, you, you don't want to be the one that breaks it off, you know, and says, hey, uh, I think we've been here long enough. Well, no, we haven't. What kind of a Christian are you? I mean, you know, so it's everybody's just, and so these two guys, uh, these two uh, witnesses, which my two tie into the witnesses in the Revelation, they say, hey guys, how, how long are you going to wait here? Jesus, he said he's coming back in the clouds, with the clouds, just, but not today. Uh, and, and so get busy. They who pierced him, that refers to the nation of Israel in their official rejection of Jesus in his first coming. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 says that at the second coming, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication when they look on me whom they pierced and mourn. Uh, and so whatever anybody else thinks, uh, they who pierced the Lord is a reference to Zechariah chapter 12. And there, Zechariah says, it's the Jews. Uh, it's not the Jews and the Romans. Sure, the Romans were involved uh, but specifically, God is dealing with the Jews. And it says, every eye will see him. That means everyone on the earth who is not a Jew. And so Jesus comes back and all the Jews that are alive are going to see him and mourn for him and get saved. And then there's going to be multitudes of Gentiles who have survived the great tribulation, some believers, some non-believers, and they will get dealt with in a judgment. All the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Again, this mourning speaks of repentance. Uh, and the repentance of Israel uh, especially. Even so, amen. Uh, this is the second amen in this passage, and as much as I look for it, there are no a-womans uh, in this. I wanted there to be because I want to be contemporary. I want so bad to fit in. What a joke. What's wrong with everybody? People are crazy. Uh, if you don't know what that's about, just Google it later on. Or ask somebody who laughed really loud. They know. They obviously know. A prayer ended in Congress this, this week, right? Yeah. With a man and a woman. I don't know. Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. It's like our expression, everything from A to Z. As if that wasn't inclusive enough, Jesus said he was the beginning and the end. So with the revelation of Jesus Christ completing the Bible, you and I have God's entire alphabet and every word he wants to say to us in print. Okay, so that, that's what's happening here. Jesus described himself in terms equal to God the Father when he said, who is and who was and who is to come. Almighty is used 10 times in the New Testament. Nine of those are in the Revelation. It means something like the one who had his hand on everything. It's a word of oversight. Although Satan is still wreaking havoc, God limits the authority of the ruler of this world, and God works through providence to push his plan forward to its ultimate and inevitable end. Just as an aside, a personal thing with me, um, I still say it because it's part of our vocabulary as Christians, but lately, the last few years, I've gotten away from saying to people that God is in control. 
I say God is in charge. And here's why. Control can have the connotation that everything that happens, God wants to happen and that he planned it to happen and that it has nothing really to do with the opposition of the devil, that he just uses the devil as his tool. And eventually you get to a point where, and there are people who believe this, they'll say that every molecule in the universe is predetermined by God to do only what he wants it to do. And the ultimate conclusion to that is God wanted that baby to be aborted. God wanted that woman to be sexually assaulted. God wanted this murder to happen. And so you're in a conundrum. If God is in control, maybe it's because, and a lot of you too, more than me, you've been with suffering people, deaths and, and you know, tragedies. And to look at a person and say, well, your, uh, your baby died because God is in control and it glorifies him to kill your baby. Uh, God's in charge. He's in general oversight. The universe isn't going to do anything crazy. Uh, but it's kind of like a Job situation where the devil still has access and he says, I want to do some things. And the, the Lord says, well, all right, I can allow that because I'm in charge. Uh, and and uh, so it's just wrap your mind about around that a little bit and stuff because God is not the author of sin and he is not the one responsible for evil. Uh, now, you think, well, what's the difference if he allows it? We've talked about this many, many times. He allows it because he is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. God has the plan for stopping all evil and all wickedness, but once it begins with this book at the end times, it's going to rapidly progress, as we talked about earlier in chapter 1, and there will be no chance for people to get saved again at some point. Uh, and so it's, you know, it's a long-suffering situation with God. And so uh, think about that. If you think I'm a heretic, I'm not. Uh, but, uh, you know, God is in charge, and he can use this in your life. Uh, but, you know, um, if, if you just always think of where your thoughts lead you ultimately. So if I say this, where am I going to end up? Right? You understand what I mean? And how does it, how does it really reflect the nature and the character of God who says he loved me and washed me from my sins so that I could spend eternity with him? Uh, once again, we note that Jesus spoke of us prominently in this section. We will serve with him, next to him, as kings and priests, or some translated as a kingdom of priests. Our world can seem to be spinning out of control. That includes the world at large and our own personal worlds. Uh, you know, while I think we talked about this a little bit last week, while we look outside and we see COVID and, you know, Congress and all these different things that are happening, you, you still have your own problems. You know, I mean, the world has problems and we're sucked into that, but we all have our own problems and issues and situations that need addressing. And, and if we get our eyes off of Jesus, even a little, we're going to be drawn into the blur and into the world. Uh, and, and it's going to make us spiritually sick. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Now I want to share a quote from Charles Spurgeon. I, I came across it when I was reading that other quote this week. It isn't about our study so much as it's about every Bible study. It's a desire that everyone who teaches the Bible should have, but everyone who hears it taught as well. Spurgeon said this, 
I have talked with you as well as I could upon this sublime theme, and if I did not know that the Holy Spirit glorifies Christ, I should go home miserable, for I have not been able to glorify my Lord as I would, but I know that the Holy Spirit can take what I have said out of my heart and can put it into your hearts, and he can add to it whatever I have omitted. Go ye who love the Lord and glorify him. Try to do it by your lips and by your lives. Go ye and preach him, preach more of him, and preach him up higher and higher and higher. Let's pray.